He says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You may be seated. You know, one of the things that we learn pretty early in our Christian experience is that God wants us to tell other people about him and about this life that we have in him. And he even gives us opportunities to share with other people, to share the message of the gospel. One of the um, most important passages in the New Testament, I mean, every word of God is inspired and it's all profitable, but there are those verses that really kind of sum up what is fundamental to the Christian experience. And one of those verses is Acts 1 Eight. And it's this promise that is given by Jesus, really. And he says that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And there's a message that God has chosen for the world. It's a message that God has for the world, and he's chosen you and I to deliver it, and he's given us the ability to deliver it too. It's the message of the gospel, and he tells us that he's going to give us the power to be his witnesses. He doesn't necessarily say, you will witness for me, but he says, you shall be my witnesses, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And we'll talk more about that. Um, but it's a promise that the Lord has given us where we're not dependent on our own strength, our own skills, our own abilities. We've been born again, and we have the Spirit of God. We have the message of the gospel. And there are going to be times that he wants us just to open our mouths and to put the message out there and, and watch his Holy Spirit work. The message of the gospel. And it's not really that profound on the surface if you think about it, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in it would not perish but would have eternal life. And there's nothing, you know, if you think about that, maybe before you were a Christian and you heard that message, well, how does that change anything? That someone died on a, you know, an instrument of Roman execution, because that's what it was. There were thousands of people that were crucified way back when. The Romans developed and perfected the art of crucifixion. There isn't anything really particularly profound about that message in and of itself, apart from the Spirit of God working in someone who is hearing that message. And it's really, sometimes we can look at it, and it's a foolish message. And, and 1 Corinthians one twenty one tells us that it, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. And what was the message preached? What was the message of the gospel? And, you know, we hear that word so many times in our Christian experience, the gospel, the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? And 
really you can distill it down to two elements. I am a sinner, and he is a savior. Of course, there's a lot of theology that goes in there, and we can expand and get more specific about that. But at the end of the day, everyone who has ever been born on the planet, you have Adam and Eve who were created in this perfect environment. They sinned against God, and the Bible tells us that by one man, sin entered the human race, and every other person who has ever been born has been infected with this malady. You know, we're we're born and we come into the world, and almost right away, you know, you start living life and you realize that, oh, something's just not quite right on the inside, and something's not quite right with my brother and with my sister and with this person and with that person, and everyone on the whole planet is infected with this disease of a sinful nature. And, you know, you can go on any news outlet and you can read all kinds of specifics in terms of how this sinful nature is manifested, how it plays out. So that's that's half of the story, right, that we're all in this huge mess. The other part of the story, the good part, is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? Baseball games, you see it there. John 3.16, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. So that is what the message of the gospel is, that no matter how hard I try, I have this thing that is fundamentally broken on the inside that I inherited way back when in human history, and every other person that's ever lived has the same condition. And there's a foolishness of a message that preached. Oh, hey, some guy died you know, on a Roman cross, and that, that, that's going to fix everything. But that is the message that God has chosen. By the foolishness of what is preached, God has been pleased to save those who believe in that message. And that's really what the message of the gospel is when we hear the gospel. You know, we hear that term quite often, and, and sometimes we don't understand specifically what um, it means. And over the last four years, I've had the opportunity, I didn't quite expect to be back here for this season in my life, but it's the, what God has ordained, so here I am. But over the last four years, I've had the opportunity, first in Austria for a year, and then the last three years in England, just to be out and about. And in England particularly, it's a pedestrian society there are a lot of people out walking around, you know, they're taking public transportation, there are public squares and all that, and it's fairly easy to engage someone in conversation. And a lot of times people will come up to you. They have a lot of um, charity workers from the, like the, the RSPCA or the British Heart Foundation or whomever, and they'll come up to you and they'll, they have, they'll try to solicit donations and things for their Organizations and I'll you know I'll listen to them, and you know polite and then okay well you know my funds are committed elsewhere but then I'll I'll steer the conversation and sometimes we're going to find ourselves in situations where where we're in a conversation with someone and we sense that oh I think this is a setup from the Lord so we begin to steer the conversation towards spiritual things. And I would do that quite often in England. I'm, I'm not a, um, you know, I'm introverted by nature. I don't like to, to, well, I don't like to speak in front of people. It's a secret and all that. But we can 
we can be in these situations and we're able to steer the conversation toward the things of the Lord. And a lot of times, you know, as the passage um, that we're going to talk about today, we're there in fear and trembling. And Lord, what do I have to offer? How are words that I am going to speak from my mouth, how is that going to affect someone's eternity? How is that ever going to change anything? But by the foolishness of the message that was preached, God has delighted in in using that to to change uh, uh, the destiny of a human soul. So the gospel, you know, we're out and about in our own kind of spheres and and all that sort of thing, and we're never really going to be prepared or ready. Um, We're never really going to be fully prepared and comfortable to share the gospel Unless, I mean, there are some people who just really have the gift of evangelism. You know, you can look at someone like Billy Graham or or Greg Laurie or maybe someone with a really kind of charismatic personality. But most of us, we're Christians and we don't really want to, you know, talk a whole lot about, you know, the Lord and public and all that because, you know, it's just we don't feel that we're equipped. But the truth is God wants to use each one of us. Paul, in another section in, I think it's in 2 Corinthians, he talks about how we are the fragrance of Christ to those who are being saved, or the aroma of life leading to life, and to those who are perishing, the aroma of death unto, unto death. So, and then he says, who is sufficient for these things? In other words, how do we manifest the life of Jesus in our, our lives. How do we how do we like ooze Jesus out of our pores? Well, who is sufficient for these things? Jesus is sufficient for these things. And he's going to give us these opportunities and hopefully today we'll be encouraged a little bit uh, in terms of being able to communicate our faith because that's what God's called us to do. You shall be my witnesses. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will receive power, and you will be my witnesses. And it's just what we are. We have the, the true and the living God inside of us, and we're in a context where everyone on the planet is a sinner. You know, there's, there's enough sinners to go around, as, as it's been said. So, you know, just let your light shine. And there are going to be these times where the door swings open, and we just need to open our mouths. So in this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul gives us a window into kind of his disposition when he initially came to Corinth. He's writing this letter about five years after he had first come to Corinth, and he's reminding them of the manner in which he came. There wasn't anything really particularly fancy about his evangelistic methods. He didn't have like um, a, an advanced drama team and all kinds of you know advertisement and all that. He just showed up, but there's a real work of God that had begun, and the fact that he has a church in Corinth to write a letter to is evidence that his message was effective, right? But you have 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, because there is a church to receive that letter. And the way that the church happened there, the way that it, 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 it was given birth, is because he just came with a simple message of the gospel. 1 Corinthians is sometimes 
referred to as a letter of correction. We're not going to get into all those details. There were certainly a lot of problems with the Corinthian church. But uh, the, the letter is a rebuke, but it's also a reminder of simple things, basic things about Christianity, and it's an exhortation. So hopefully today we can be exhorted as we look into these um, verses. The Corinthians had come to faith through the simple message of the gospel delivered by Paul, and now a few years down the road, they seem to be divided. You can, in, in other chapters of Corinthians, they're, they're arguing over, well, hey, I follow Paul, but I follow, this group over here follows Apollos, and we follow Cephas, and there are these kind of factions that are rising up within the church and all that, and, and, and they seem to be enamored with philosophy and human wisdom and that sort of thing. And just like the Corinthians, sometimes we can lose our focus and we can let the simplicity of the message of the gospel kind of slip away and we can kind of be looking for that that one thing. If I only had this one thing, then I would really be a good Christian and all that. But the one thing is just simply believing the Lord, just having a simple faith in him and taking him at his word. And he's trying to remind the Corinthians of this. So there's a little bit of a backstory, and you don't have to turn to the book of Acts, but later maybe if you want to read Acts chapter 18, um, it's toward the end of his second missionary journey, and he had just come to Corinth from Athens, and he had seen the philosophers on Mars Hill. He had been brought into the Areopagus, and it tells us about kind of their disposition that they just, all they did was sit around and talk about new ideas and listen to new ideas and that sort of thing. And Paul kind of, maybe he saw through the emptiness of that. He, he tried to be a little bit culturally relevant in sharing the gospel. They called him a babbler because he talked about the resurrection of the dead and, and all that sort of thing. Um, and there was some fruit in Athens, but there wasn't really a, a great revival, that sort of thing. So Corinth is the next place that is looming on his itinerary. And perhaps Paul is thinking, you know, what am I going to bring to Corinth? And Corinth was a city like Las Vegas, uh, in a lot of ways, it was Sin City. It was a port city. There were um, a lot of sailors there. Nothing against sailors, but generally 2,000 years ago, sailors in a port city, they were preoccupied by a, a few specific things. And there, were, there was pagan worship and just all kinds of things like that happening. And Paul, maybe he's thinking like, what am I going to bring to Corinth? Am I going to bring some sort of clever argument? Am I going to be able to philosophically persuade someone to turn away from those things in their lives? Or does there have to be something else in operation in my message when I get there? And so that's a little bit of, of the backstory. He, he just brings the simple gospel. And the Bible tells us in, in the book of Romans, it says that, He's, Paul writes, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus, for it is the power of salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And he brings the message of the gospel, and it's just this, this simple sort of thing. 
And so these first five verses that, that we're going to look at here, Paul is kind of deflecting their attention away from uh, human wisdom and humanism and, and arguments and, and things like that, the, the, the kind of um, super spiritual things that they have become enamored in. And he's just bringing them back to, hey, you know, when I came to you guys, I, I didn't come with any of these arguments that you guys seem to be enamored with now. I just came with a simple message of the gospel, and that's what you need to get back to. So, so verse 1 here in chapter 2, he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. Um, we, we know again from Acts chapter 18, that he arrived in, in Corinth and then he went into the synagogue as was his custom and then to the Gentiles after that. And there's fruit. It tells us in Acts 18, uh, 8 says that many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. They heard the gospel and they believed it and they were baptized. Paul's coming to them uh, simply with the gospel worked. And the proof of that is that there were converts, and now there is a church that previously did not exist in the city of Corinth. There's one more Roman city. If you look at a, a map on the ancient world, you can look at Bible maps of Paul's missionary journeys and all that. And you can see all these different cities, um, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, wh where, wherever, Thessalonica, all these places that he went. And there were no churches there, and he came with a message, and by the time he left, there were churches that were planted. So um, he comes, it, he says that I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, but what I did do is I declared to you the testimony of God. He comes with the testimony of God. And what is the testimony of God? Well, it's an accurate diagnosis of a condition and also a solution to that condition. And we talked already about the gospel, what the gospel is, how we're broken and how we need a savior and how God has provided that savior. And this is the testimony that Paul came with. And this is a testimony that the world needs. And I will say this, sometimes we think we have this idea that, oh, I'm not even going to share with my friend because I, I can just tell that they're closed or I'm not going to share with this person because they have tattoos and piercings and all that kind of thing. And I think the devil wants to kind of shut us down and discourage us. But a lot of those people, you would be surprised that maybe they've tried everything else. And, you know, there are plenty of philosophies of, of the world that all these different kind of ways, oh, this is how you live, or this is how you live, and this is what you need, and this is what you need. And at the end of the day, they're all lies and they're all empty. And someone comes with the gospel and it is a reasonable explanation of things. Like, wow, this actually, this is so crazy and outlandish that it sounds like it's actually true and, and real. I mean, it explains where I came from, right? It explains origins. It explains how the world came into existence. It explains why the world is, is so crazy. It explains why I'm broken on the inside. And it also bears witness with my heart when I hear the gospel. And when I read the pages of scripture, it bears witness in my heart. And how many of you, 
you know, you, you, you've been saved, you've accepted Christ as your Savior, and you have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, and now you open your Bible, and maybe you're praying about something, and God just gives you a word, and it's living, and it's alive. And it works. And it's the testimony of God. And you know, I've said this before other times that I've taught that you know, the, the Bible tells us to speak the truth in love. And, you know, the world, there's a lot of kind of very loose interpretations on what truth is. Well, hey, that's your truth, and your truth isn't my truth, and all that. Well, if truth is relative, it's not really truth at all. It, it's just kind of like a way to define a place that you're at. This is my truth. Well, if the Word of God is true, and I believe that it is, then we have this anchor. We have this one thing that is steadfast, and people are looking for that. They, you know, if you've been lied to, you can kind of tell, right? And I think that people in, in the world are, a lot of them are, are really looking for something that's real, and they're just waiting for someone to tell them. And the gospel is a reasonable explanation of everything in the world, wh where we came from, how the, the, you know, the worlds were formed by, by the things that were not made, it tells us in Hebrews. And it just explains everything, right? It really does at, at the end of the day. So Paul, in verse 2, he says that I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And it's just the simple heart of the gospel. I, I determined to know nothing um, when I was among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, that Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth and was crucified for the sin of the world. And, and that's really the, the, sim, the simple message of the gospel. He tells us in verse 3, he says that, I was with you in, in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And why? Um, well, part of that, people were believing the gospel in Corinth and they were getting baptized. And for Paul, wherever a successful ministry was happening, it usually meant that a riot or a stoning or some kind of a beating wasn't too far away. So he's preaching the gospel. All these people are starting to get saved and he's like, uh-oh, I know what happens next. And he's looking for the rocks to fly, and he's looking for the, the, the protests and, and whatever. But what happens? Well, he gets a word from the Lord in the midst of that. Acts um, chapter 18, verses 9 and, and 10, it says that, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, <clears throat> and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. So Paul, sometimes we think of him as a, a super saint and all that, but he was a human, you know, just like us. He wasn't God. He was a, a mere human who, who was chosen and called by God to, to do pioneering work in an apostolic ministry. But he's afraid, and that's why God has to say, do not be afraid. And sometimes God will speak that to our heart. You know, we're... we're doing ministry or maybe we're, we, we think we should share with someone and we have this fear and God will come to us and he will say, do not be afraid. Keep speaking. I have many people in this city. No one's going to attack you to hurt you. 
That wasn't true in other cities. There were places where they did attack him and all that. But his grace, was, the Lord's grace was sufficient. And this is an example of God's strength being perfected in human weakness. And the Bible tells us that we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power would not be of us, but of God. And here Paul is coming in weakness, and so often it's our very weaknesses and the things that we may not be good at in the natural. And we have these, you know, this human fragmentation, and it's the light of God and the love of God that flows through those very cracks as we yield those things to him, as we bring them to the foot of the cross. We see his power manifested in our lives, and there's no other explanation than it's it's the Lord that is working. So verse 4 here in, in uh, chapter 2 of Corinthians, he says, My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, not in persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So what is Paul doing here? He's making disciples of Jesus rather than making disciples of himself. And that's what God's called us to do. He's called us to make disciples of Jesus. If Paul went into a particular place and he used charisma and his own personal kind of humanistic wisdom and all that, and people followed his sort of, you know, brand of whatever, he would never have been able to leave because he would have been the kind of star figure and all that sort of thing. He would never have been able to leave because the people would have been there for him. What he did do is he came into a new city and he preached the gospel and he made disciples of Jesus and that way he was free to leave when his time was, was done, when the Holy Spirit said, okay, well done, Paul, in, in the city of Corinth. I want you to move on and, and go to Ephesus or, or wherever was next on the itinerary. And he never would have been able to do that if they were his own disciples, right? If, you know, as the Corinthians, they were saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. No, no, I follow Christ, Right? And so his, his speech and preaching weren't with persuasive words of human wisdom. He could have used persuasive words and wisdom. We know a little bit about his intellect. You can read a bo the book of, of Romans, for instance, and you can <clears throat> read some of these high-level arguments that he has in there from Scripture. We know that he had a mind if he wanted to use that in a secular context. We know that he he had intellect and he could have done that sort of thing, but he purposes that, you know what, I'm God's given me a mind. I'm not going to check my mind at the door, but I'm going to use it in alignment with the scriptures and in alignment with the Spirit of God. So he used simple words, but his words were anointed by the Spirit of God. And because of that, they penetrated the human hearts in such a way that the Corinthians knew that God was real. <clears throat> Simple words anointed by the Spirit of God. And again, you know, the, the passage that I mentioned in Colossians, the foolishness of what was preached, 
God chose to use that to bring people to faith. And again, it's the message of the gospel, like how I, I can't share with someone because I don't really have a profound sort of message. But if you know what the gospel is, then that's really all that's sufficient. And if you have an open door from the Lord, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. The Holy Spirit guides us. If you have an open door, we've all, I, a lot of us have had that open door. And all we do is we just, you know, as best as we're able, we communicate the message of the gospel. What I do, I taught at the Bible College in York for, for three years. And um, in talking with the students, a lot of times what I would encourage them to do, and what I had done myself, is to prepare a two or three minute presentation of the gospel where you can explain just the basics of the gospel to someone when you're in that conversation with someone and you begin to steer that conversation. And I, I, I would share, when I was on the street talking with people, I would share just a brief, you know, hey, here's what, do you believe in God? No, I'm an evolutionist or I'm an agnostic or, or whatever. I'd say, well, well, great. Well, and then I would share a little bit about my testimony and how I came to faith. So in just a couple minutes, if you prepare a little bit ahead of time, you can share with someone your own testimony. And there's power in, in your own testimony because it's proof that you came to faith in Jesus at some point in time, right? All of you, uh, I would hope, that are in this room today, if you are a believer in Jesus, you came to faith at some point in time, right? So other people are going to come to faith also. <clears throat> and if you have just a little bit of a testimony that you can share with someone, that has great power. So Paul used simple words, but they were anointed by the Spirit of God. Um, I, w I will say this. When Paul came to Corinth, he didn't completely fly by the seat of his pants. We know that there's specific content to the gospel. So he was well-schooled in the Old Testament. A lot of the New Testament wasn't written yet at this point, but he knew the scriptures. And as Christians, we should have an understanding of what the scriptures are, and we should be able to, to give a reason, right? The Bible says that always be ready to give a reason to whoever asks the reason for the, the hope that lies within you. And we should be able to reason from the scriptures. Paul didn't come with philosophical arguments and that sort of thing, but he did reason from the scriptures. His, his MO, any new place that he went to, the first place that he go would be the synagogue, and he would reason to them from the Old Testament that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah. He would probably go to passages like Psalm 22, which is clearly messianic, a clearly a messianic psalm, and Isaiah, and all these different passages that clearly uh, point to Jesus. So he wasn't a novice. This is near the end of his second missionary journey, and he knew how to present the gospel, but he was always dependent upon the Lord when he, he came to a place. Um, First Thessalonians, as Rick taught on this the other night, in the beginning of that letter, in First Thessalonians 1, 5, he says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but it did come in word, right? There was specific content. But it also came in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. So, he did speak, and he did preach, and there was specific 
content to his words, but he was dependent on the Holy Spirit. And I'll say this, um, you know, there is an element of preparation just as Christians. We come, we come to church, most of us come to church two or more times a week, and there is instruction that, that we receive, and, and there are spiritual gifts that God has given us. There's a, a story that I heard some years back about um, there was a, a Bible study or a church service, and the worship leader didn't show up. So there was a woman there, and all of a sudden she walks over to the piano, and she rolls up her sleeves, and, and she puts her hand right above the keyboard, and everybody's looking at her, kind of waiting for something to happen. And then she says, I'm waiting for the gift. And, I mean, it's great to have that kind of faith and all that sort of thing, but it's also good to know what your spiritual gifts are and to, to fan the gift into flame and kind of figure out ahead of time and be prepared, right? The, the Bible tells us that everyone's been given at least one spiritual gift, and we should have some idea of what that is. Romans 12.6 is a great passage. Paul says, uh, beginning in 12.6, he says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. And Paul obviously had the gift of teaching, preaching, and so he says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith, or ministry, let us use it in ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, etc., etc. So there's this idea of understanding what your gifts are in the body of Christ. And, and, you know, spiritual gift tests, those are, you know, those are okay. But what I would say, <clears throat> we know that everyone who is a Christian has received at least one spiritual gift. I would say, show up with a heart and mind to serve the Lord, be in the scriptures, be in prayer, be in fellowship. And as you serve the Lord, those gifts will begin to emerge and you will realize, and other people may say, hey, I think you have the gift to do this, or I think you have the gift of administration, or, or, or whatever your gifts are. And those things will become evident, right? So having gifts according to the grace of God that is given to us, let us use them. Let us use them, right? It's a reasonable thing. God has saved us. He's given us his spirit. He's given us gifts, and he wants us to use them. And I believe that in the church, God has given everything that's needed in a particular fellowship for that fellowship to operate at the highest level that it's able to. But sometimes we can become, we can become you know, sleepy and, and that sort of thing and just on cruise control. So he's given us gifts, and Paul here is using his gift— Right? He's coming in, in weakness and depending on the Lord, but he knows that he's been called to preach the gospel, and he does that, and the Lord begins to show up. His speech and his preaching were not, with, were not profound, but they were accompanied, he tells us, in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And this idea comes up over and over again in the New Testament where the gospel is being preached, but there's also... Uh, the Holy Spirit that's in operation, 
and power. We talked about the passage in Thessalonians. We could look at Acts chapter 10. Don't turn there, but in Acts chapter 10, where Peter receives the call to go to Cornelius, and, and this is kind of a transition in Acts where the gospel is now going more full-fledged to the Gentiles. Um, it tells us that when Peter goes there to Cornelius in Caesarea, while he was speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And it's what, what did Peter bring? He, he just, again, he simply brought the message of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit is there falling, giving his yea and amen to the message that is being preached. And, and when we share the gospel with people, when God opens the door, we never know what is happening in that human heart. And so often the Holy Spirit has completely engineered the, the circumstance without even us knowing about it. And the Holy Spirit is at work in that person's heart. And we're just presenting this message. And we have no idea, you know, I, I've shared the gospel with an awful lot of people, but I'm not a dear, I'm not a, a door, a dear closer, a door closer, like closing the sale, not a door closer. I'm not a deal closer. Getting my word, I know it began with a D here somewhere. You know, some people have the, the gift of, I guess you could say, reaping. You know, other, some, some sow, some water, and all that, but God gives the increase. And so often, I think, our expressions of Christian love and our expressions of what God does through us, he does not allow us immediately to see that fruit because we might not be able to handle it and we might get really puffed up and that, and that sort of thing. So there are all these different things. You've heard of the, the illustration of a, a garment label or, or a, a tapestry where you're looking at the back of it and you see all these random threads and everything and they don't appear to be anything significant. And um, you turn it over and you see this thing that has been embroidered on the other side. And so often our, our lives are like that. And, you know, now we see in part, then we will see, you know, the, the, the whole picture and all that sort of thing. So a lot of what we do is in faith and we're just trusting in the Lord that he's working and we open our mouths and whether that person comes to faith or not, we don't know. I had a number of people share the gospel with me beginning in my like mid to late teens um, and into my early 20s. And it wasn't until I was 21 that I became a believer in Jesus Christ. But there were these other people that I never saw, I've never seen since. And they shared the gospel with me, and they have no idea that I became a Christian and went on to serve the Lord and, and all that. And I think that God has designed it to be that way. And when we get to heaven, then an awful lot of things will be explained and an awful lot of things that will make sense that don't really make sense right now. So, <clears throat> so we see Paul here, and he's declaring the testimony of God and he brings a message from another world about another kingdom where righteousness reigns. There, there are all these testimonies about how to live and, and you know what life is and all that, but Paul brings this testimony of God about another kingdom. And I believe that a lot of times when we share, prophecy is one of the spiritual gifts. And I think that a lot of times as Christians, we may use that gift without even realizing it. You've heard the story of, you know, someone preaching the gospel and 
there's maybe someone that, that that's in the room and, and, and they come up afterwards and did my wife call you or tell you and, and because maybe something that was spoken was a word from the Lord for them and we never know uh, how these things are in operation but this, the Holy Spirit is working when we're sharing the gospel with other people um there's the example, obviously, Jesus, I believe that Jesus um, had the gift of prophecy, right? He was the Son of God, so he probably had all the spiritual gifts. Um, yeah. But in John chapter 4, he's speaking, he's this, there's this encounter that he has with the, the Samaritan woman at the well, and you know you know the story they they meet there at the well and Jesus is tired and thirsty he's been walking and there's this woman and they and he says give me a drink and he says well you have nothing to to draw from and the the water is deep and and all this thing and they make all this this small talk and then you know she says well hey Jesus says I'll give you living water and she thinks he's talking about just the well is going to just like spring up literal water and all that and um she says, give me this water so that I'll never have to come, you know, draw water again. And Jesus says, well, go call your husband. And she says, well, I have none. And then gently he kind of puts his finger on the thing in her heart. Well, yeah, you've rightly said the truth is you've had, you've had five husbands and the one that you're with isn't your husband now unless you've spoken correctly. And, th- and then he goes on to reveal himself as the Messiah. And there's this thing that he just puts his finger on her heart. And this this goes back to, uh, we're talking about speaking the truth in love and the great need for the world today to have the truth spoken in, in a loving way to them. And Jesus did that. And sometimes that happens um, unknown to us while we're sharing the gospel with people. There's just a word that comes forth and it's the, you know, it's the sword of the spirit. In the book of Hebrews, it says that the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce and divide between what is soulish and what is spiritual, between bone and marrow and, and, and that sort of thing. And that's what the Word of God is, and that's what the Word of God does. We bring the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit uses it in ways that we have no idea. And it has this way of penetrating into the moral consciousness of the hearers. You know, sometimes... People come at you with all these different arguments, but you just kind of give them the word of God, and there's this moral consciousness, and it just goes in and and pierces it, even though it doesn't make sense to all their intellectual ideas and arguments and everything. It just goes in, and oh, that did something, and that was real, and that was, you know, no man ever spoke like this before, right? And then there's in the gospel it says that there's there. The, the writer is speaking of Jesus, and it says that um, he taught as one having authority and not as their scribes. And that's what the, the Word of God is like in the hands of a child of God who's filled with the Spirit of God speaking into modern social chaos, if you will, right? People's lives that all kinds of chaos, and every, you know, there's so much chaos out there in the world. And you just bring a word of God, and it penetrates this kind of moral consciousness. And you never know 
when God is going to use that to reach a soul and that person is going to come to faith in Jesus. And you can't figure this stuff out ahead of time. It's been said that sometimes we need more anointing and less human wisdom, right? We need to be filled with the Spirit of God and then we'll be be ready to engage people. Um, So Paul's preaching, even though he came in weakness and he didn't come with, you know, superb presentation necessarily and arguments and all that, his preaching had a very real effect of bringing conviction repentance and salvation and the very existence of the Corinthian church is proof that it works in um, Ephesians 3 7 Paul describes his ministry he says that he became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God by the effective working of his power there's an effective working of the power of God and this is the thing that was at work in Corinth, not persuasive speech or words. So, um, do, when do we stop? Is it 11? Something. Okay, because there's still, there's still more. <laughs> we'll go to one. So, the first, there's a transition when we get to verse 6, and I'll try to wrap this up. Um, but in verse 6, he transitions away from the theme of, of you know, kind of not putting any stock in human wisdom and all that. And then in verse 6, he transitions. He says, however, there is a wisdom that I would like to talk to you about, and and that's the wisdom of God. He says in verse 6, however, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. So there is a, a wisdom, you know, there's the, the worldly wisdom. You can go into most of the secular universities today. You can learn all about how, um, about all kinds of stuff. You know, some, you know, maybe some science is, is true and whatever, but there's a lot of just different philosophies and all that sort of thing. But then there's a real wisdom that begins with acknowledging God. And we know the Bible tells us that the fool, who? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. <clears throat> and, I mean, that's the truth. It really is the truth. There, there are brilliant, I mean, you know, there's guys like Richard Dawkins in Cambridge in England. You've heard of him. He wrote The God Delusion. And, and there are all these, like, brilliant minds according to the world <clears throat> who say that there is no God. And I believe they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, as it, it says in, in the book of Romans. Um, but here... What does God say? Well, God says that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And fool, you know, we use the, the expression fool here. Fool in the Bible, it's a little bit more of a severe rebuke. If you call someone a fool, it means that they're just in danger of falling off of the edge, you know. And that's, that's the, the testimony. So the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So the beginning of wisdom, if you want to be wise in this world, that begins by fearing the Lord, not not being like <clears throat> petrified before a cruel master or someone who can squash you like a bug, but having this awesome respect for the creator of the universe and for uh, awesome respect for a loving God who knows best and who, who knows how to... Um, manage your life and manage all of the world. 
So there's a wisdom of this age that pertains to this age, but it's, it's passing away. The rulers of this age are mentioned. It says that they're coming to nothing. And, you know, think about all the, the presidents and all the kingdoms. All, all the Caesars are gone, right? Are there any, you know, is Augustus around? Is Julius around? Hitler is gone. Mussolini is gone. People are dropping off the scene, right? If, if you are born today, your chances are you're not going to live much longer than 70 or 80 years, maybe 90. There's some 100-year-olds out there. But they're all, they're all passing away. And the wisdom of this age pertains to the fallen world. But here in, in verse 7, Paul says that we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So Paul is talking about the mystery of the wisdom of God. A mystery is something that's not readily apparent on the surface of things, right? You have to kind of like peel away the layers. In Colossians 1.26, Paul writes that the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of his glory, this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So there's the wisdom of God in, in a mystery, not human wisdom, but the wisdom of God, and God has ordained it before the ages for our glory. <clears throat> and then he talks about the rulers of this age, and if they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of, of glory. Well, who are we talking about the rulers of this age? We know that Satan is, in a sense, the god of this world. He rules in a limited sort of way. There's the, the, the fallen angels, and then there's also the willing human vessels, right? The, the despots that we've seen throughout human history. The people who make laws that are, that are against God and clearly in the face of everything that, that he stands for. So there are the rulers of this age, and he says that if they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So if they knew the full picture that crucifying Jesus was going to be the thing that sealed their condemnation, they never would have done it. Um, Pilate, you know, um, Herod, Herod, Jesus was this kind of novelty. I mean, it tells us when Jesus was on trial before Herod, it says that he asked him many things and Jesus answered him not a word. That must have been pretty spooky, you know, because you're used to having people grovel at your feet and having people be afraid of you. And here you have Jesus all beaten up and whatever. And he asks him many things, and he answered him not a word. It's like, you know, Herod, my kingdom is not of this world. But as many as received him, right, there's the rulers of this age who are rejecting him and, and all that sort of thing, had him crucified. But as many as received him, John tells us, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And um, we'll wrap up shortly here. But I want to talk a little bit um, more about the wisdom of God 
And there's a great passage in Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verses 8, 8 through 12, really. And Paul talks about the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And there's an awful lot there. Um, Paul is talking about the manifold wisdom of God, and it's being made known by the church, the church that is simply believing in God and and watching him work. There's this kind of thing that's happening where the wisdom of God is being revealed to principalities and powers, fallen angels, um, angels who haven't fallen. You know, we're talking about angels and demons who are watching the drama of redemption unfold on a stage that is sometimes dimly lit and we can't always see who's in the audience and if you've ever been on um, a stage, the the church in in York, there's like lights and you know they're shining in your eyes so you can't really see who's out there all the time and sometimes that's what life is like here right, We're, we're living our lives and we're being Christians and we're sharing the gospel but we can't always see who all is out there, you know, observing everything. And the Bible tells us that there are angels that are watching things. In the book of Daniel, they're, they're, they're called watchers. But they're, they're watching the redemption of man. And to the angels, man appeared to be eternally lost, right? Sinned in the garden. Oh, my God, they didn't. She didn't just eat that piece of fruit. Oh, she gave it to her husband. Oh, he ate. Oh, my goodness, they were made in the image of God. And now they are eternally lost as far as the the angels were concerned, right? And then all of a sudden, Jesus, you know, Christ, in the wisdom of God, Christ came to earth and died on the cross for our sins. And the, the angels are watching all of this drama happen. And oh my gosh, look, Jesus is raised from the dead. And now, because of, you know, because of the one sin of Adam, many were defiled. Now, because of the one man's righteousness, many will be made pure. And there's this whole drama that's being played out. And there, there, there is the, you know, what's happening on the ground as Paul comes to Corinth. But then maybe he has a sense that in the midst of this, there's a greater audience and there's this warfare in the spirit where there are angels and demons watching men and women respond to the gospel. And maybe Paul is thinking, how is a carnal method going to work in terms of bringing the gospel to these people? How is that going to work? And he's like, you know what? This is, this is way over my head, but I have the gospel and I'm going to give the gospel And I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit is going to work as he wants to work in our lives and bring about this redemption. And then just a couple more verses we'll look at here. Um, 2 Corinthians 2, verses 9 and 10, he writes, But as as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. So, there's this kingdom that the world doesn't see. Eye has not seen, 
ear is not heard, nor is it entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those who love him, but he has revealed them to who? To someone else? He's revealed them to us by, by his spirit. And there's this whole... Um, one of the things that, that we see here, there's definitely the contrast between human wisdom in presenting the gospel and the wisdom of God. And Paul is drawing attention here. He's saying, look, there's something more that's in operation. Eye has not seen, this is, we're talking about the unconverted eyes, right? Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man this thing that God is doing, the thing that God has prepared for those who love him. But he's revealed it to us by his spirit. And since we have his spirit, should we use philosophy and persuasion and all that to, to try to convert people to a religious position? Or should we simply bring the living word of God and believe that because there's this other world, there's this thing that God is doing behind the scenes that I, no eye can see, no ear heard, except for the, the born-again believer in Jesus. So we trust in that and come that way. And I think that's the essence. Um, we'll wrap it up there, but I think that's the essence of what Paul is saying is that when he brought the gospel, he didn't rely on anything other than a simple message and a living Lord. And maybe that's the word for us today, that when we go out into our workplaces and schools and, and wherever we find ourselves in the marketplace, we have a simple message of the gospel and we have a living Lord who is inside of us and who is also at work in the hearts of other people, right? The Holy Spirit has come to John, is it John 16, to convict the world um, regarding sin and in regard to righteousness and in regard to judgment, that there's such a thing as sin, fallen nature, that there's a righteous, righteous standard and that there's a judgment coming, but there's a way out and it's by believing in Jesus Christ as the Messiah giving our lives to him. So that's the message. Let us bring that message with faith and let us seek just to be filled with his spirit and to be lights in, in the world. It was mentioned in the prayer meeting this morning that we're lights in the world and we shine in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And that's what we are. We are his witnesses. We have received power. 